distinctly remember uh, remember going up. Oh, oh gosh. Oh, your bourbon's talking <laughs> to me now. Your Told bourbon's the, talking to me now. Hold the lady. Lady. <laughs> I remember. I can see the painting of these giant rats. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Discovering Darwin, a podcast dedicated to the writings and musings of Charles Darwin. My name is James Wagner. I'm your host. And in each episode, I'm generally, and today it's true, <laughs> generally joined by my two esteemed colleagues, uh, Dr. Sarah Bray. Hi, Sarah. Hey, James. And Dr. Josh Atkins. I'm back. He's back. <laughs> We're all back. It's been a hiatus. Uh, the summer hit us hard, and we've done different things. Josh, you spent some early summer teaching, right? That's right. I taught environmental science uh, for four weeks in June, and I, I think that I will make a full recovery. <laughs> <laughs> and Sarah, you've gone to some scientific workshops and got a little vacation? Uh, I entertained family. Oh. In addition to going to a workshop. So <laughs> we'll leave it at that. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> I've uh, started a new project of photographing um, Audubon plates, which I've just finished. The 435 plates today, I finished photographing those, and then I started photographing the... Audubon mammal plates, which I don't even know how many there are. Uh, it's an interesting project, but I won't get into it. But we've been gone, and uh, I thought about what the next episode would be, and I thought I was really struck by reading um, The Voyage of the Beagle, Darwin Dealing with Mammals. And so I gave uh, Sarah and Josh a couple of prompts about mammals that we would sort of explore what mammals are meant to Darwin and how, uh, you know, I think by all accounts, the kinds of mammals he collected, the extinct fossils he collected and the extant mammals he collected really opened his mind up to evolution and probably was the impetus for thinking about transmutation of species, not the Galapagos finches as most people think. I think that came later and sort of confirmed his view. So we'll give you, the listener, um, a perception or a background on some of the interesting mammals that Darwin collected and how they really influenced his thoughts, right? So to start with, I thought maybe we should just, you know, do some bookkeeping. Like, what is a mammal? Josh? I'm a mammal. And how do you know that? I have hair and a luxurious beard. (laughs) There you go. Hair, right? That's a characteristic of mammals. I'm 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 really worried about asking this, but I'm going to go ahead and see how it goes. (laughs) Sarah, are you a mammal? I am because I possess the uh, characteristic that goes in the name. Um, and that would be? Mammals have mammary glands. That is correct. They also have another gland, though. What's sebaceous that? glands. Oh, yeah. That's right. And, right. and in fact, that's what a mammary gland is, right? It is right. a modified sweat gland. Yeah. So. There you go. Think about that. All that excitement and in Instagram over modified Sweat, sweat glands. glands. Yeah. What's ma'am? I mean, you know, I think it's pretty exciting. We used to teach this class, and I'm kind of going to teach a version of it again, where we walk through the diversity of life. And when we get to mammals, I lo- always love to freak kids out with talking about platypuses, because they're weird, mm-hmm. right? And they're kind of this basal mammal. But most people don't realize that um, while t- being truly mammals, they do have mammary glands, they do not possess nipples. Mm-hmm. They just lactate on their belly yeah and then the offspring just lick it up off the hair that's so cute yeah (laughs) (laughs) but these are not 
really the reasons are mammal, right? Or giving live birth. These are the arguments that students mm-hmm. often tell us. The hairs, true, mammary glands. But these are not the uh, defining characteristics of mammals because paleontologists right, would not be able to find these characteristics fossilized. And if those are the characteristics that define mammals, I argue that coconuts are mammals. Ooh, got milk, got <laughs> hair. Very good. I like that. <laughs> no glands, though. No glands, but... <laughs> Neither do uh, platypuses. Oh, it's, uh, they have right. glands. Right. right, no nipples. No nipples. Anyway, so what is... <laughs> the, the fact that you're listening to us ramble about this <laughs> subject is why you're a mammal, because you can hear with modified jaw bones, which become ear bones, right? Yep. And so really, the paleontologist drew an arbitrary line in the fossil record and said, as soon as you have ear These bones... Things. Ear bones, hammer and... The other parts of the ear bones, which I should have... Stirrup. Stirrup. There you go. Let's, There's one more. There's three. There's probably more. But anyway. <laughs> Is it the you hammer, can the anvil, that. and the stirrup? Nonetheless, they're all modified <laughs> jaw bones that make you hear us. Whereas other animals can hear, but they use different organs and structures, which we won't bore you with. But it's interesting to panic membranes mm-hmm. and jaw bones of snakes picking up vibrations and, and the such. But mammals, that's what it is. Ear bones. And... So there are no snakes or serpent people listening to this podcast? Um, with their jaws. Ah, uh, with their jaws. jaws. Yeah. <laughs> Not with their ear bones. Right. They yes, put right. Their, their Beats headphones right over their sides. That's yeah. how you can tell that they're a they're, reptile person. Yeah. <laughs> the low-riding headphones. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. So mammals. So I asked you guys to sort of think about Darwin and how he interacted with some of the um, specimens he collected and the writings that he did in the journal as, as we mentioned before, this season, we're sort of exploring Darwin as the adventurer, focusing on his five-year voyage on the HMS Beagle. And I was really interested in mammals because if you read uh, The Voyage of the Beagle, you start to see that he gives hints to this concept of uh, transmutation of species, of, of evolution, even though at 19, 18, sorry, 1837, he hadn't really solidified his concept of evolution by natural selection yet. So when you read Voyage... That's still a Darwin who thinks about fixed species. But the specimens that he collected and the things that he saw really started to open his eyes up. And I'm going to read a quote from the journal. Um, This is on the uh, Harvard version on page 187. And he says in the middle of the paragraph, In this collection there are extinct species from all the 32 genera, excepting four, of the terrestrial quadrupeds now inhabiting the provinces in which the caves occur. And the extinct species are much more numerous than those now living. There are fossil anteaters, armadillos, tapirs, peccaries, guanacos, opossums, and numerous South American gnawlers and monkeys and other animals. This wonderful relationship in the same continent between the dead and the living will, I do not doubt, hereafter throw more light on the appearance of organic beings on our earth and their disappearance from it than any other class of facts. So in the voyage, that's, that's a pretty bold statement to make. And then in his uh, red notebook, which is one of his famous notebooks where he jotted down thoughts, that's where he begins to really connect the South American fossil organisms to the South American living organisms. And it really does start to make him think about uh, the, the connection between uh, organisms in the past to the present in all these different continents, because he went to Australia, right? And he saw the marsupials, and then he thinks about Europe. So this is why I wanted us to talk about mammals. So 
That's why I wanted to talk about mammals. <laughs> why did you want to talk about mammals, Sarah? Because they're cool. Because he found so many really interesting things, and they were really, really big. Um, and so I have a little um, quote that I'm just going to read part of it, because I think part of it also fits to some something else we're going to talk about tonight. But um, this is actually in Voyage of the Beagle in Chapter 9. And he says... It is impossible to reflect without deepest astonishment on the changed state of this continent. Formerly, it must have been swarmed with great monsters like the southern parts of Africa. But now we find only the tapir, guanaco, armadillo, capybara, mere pygmies compared to the antecedent races. Since their loss, no very great physical changes can have taken place in the nature of the country. Then what has exterminated so many living creatures? So I, I like that one because, again, it's this whole, like, whoa, at one point there were these really big animals like we have now in Africa, but what we have left here today looks nothing like those guys. Except that they're similar in form. Yeah, so he's like, they're way smaller. Way smaller, right. So he's got a couple of interesting um, observations he's made. What about you, Josh? What were you intrigued by? One thing that I thought was cool in uh, searching for Darwin's thoughts on mammals was this notion of trying to correlate the the size and abundance of mammals to the availability of food. Mm -hmm. And uh, throughout, I think, a few chapters, and I don't have anywhere specifically in mind to point out, um, but he wrestles with this notion that in Africa, the, the vegetation is, is somewhat sparse in terms of its uh, complexity and diversity compared to South America. Uh, yet, in Africa, we have, uh, in Darwin's day, and in fact, in, in ours, we have very large uh, megafauna, right? Um, so when you mean megafauna, you're talking... I'm talking elephants. Uh, I'm even talking, you know, zebras, right. uh, 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 gazelles, things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think the average mammal size is like maybe the size of a cat. Like if you took all the mammals that live today, I think their average mammal size is around. So anything that's as big as you're talking, a zebra, a, a impala, gazelles... Yeah, that's huge compared to a relative average mammal size. And so here is a quote from chapter five where Darwin is kind of talking about uh, where these different animals originate. And um, I will sort of paraphrase uh, portions of this paragraph so I don't go long. But he says, uh, besides these large animals, everyone the least acquainted with the natural history of the Cape has read of the herds of antelopes, which can be compared only with the flocks of migratory birds. The numbers indeed of the lion, panther, and hyena, and the multitude of birds of prey plainly speak of the abundance of the smaller quadrupeds. One evening, seven lions were counted at the same time prowling around Dr. Smith's encampment. So recounting this expedition in Africa. Um, as this able naturalist remarked to me, the carnage each day in southern Africa must indeed be terrific. I confess it is truly surprising how much a number of animals can find, uh, sorry, I confess it is truly surprising how such a number of animals can find support in a country producing so little food. So he's trying to correlate the abundance of potential food and plants and all that to the number of animals that a country can support. And then I'm, I'm going to fast forward a little bit here. Uh, there can be no doubt, however, that our ideas respecting the apparent amount of food necessary for the support of large quadrupeds are much exaggerated. It should have been remembered that the camel, an animal of no mean bulk, has always been considered as the emblem of the desert. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about that. So he's in South America, beautiful, we've been there, right? Luxurious jungles, 
thick forested. And you're thinking to yourself, there's plenty of plant material here. Mm -hmm. It should support tons of organisms. The world is green. And yet the large mammals there are no bigger than a, maybe a capybara, mm -hmm. which is, if you think about it, it's maybe the size of a large tapir. dog. Tapir. Yeah, they're still pretty small. They're like a pig size. Mm -hmm. But then, like you said, Josh, you go to Africa, the Serengeti, this big, wide, open, brown, grassy plain is just dotted with herds of gazelle, herds of zebras, herds of, um, you know, groups of giraffes. I don't know if you call a group of giraffes. Um, <laughs> a neck. A neck. <laughs> <laughs> Elephants. I mean, yeah, there's all these um, herbivores, large biomass of herbivores. And yet, what is supporting them, right? The base of that pyramid seems mm -hmm. pretty thin. So how does that work, Sarah, as an ecologist? How do, you, how do you support all that biomass with very little vegetation and then come to a place that has tons of vegetation mm -hmm. and not support the biomass? Yeah, I mean, I think in, in some ways it's still a big question. And some of it has to do with the metabolism of those animals and how efficient they are at, meta at metabolizing what their basal metabolic rate is. But when we're talking about grasses, this is something that's continually renewing and that mm -hmm. actually requires fire or grazing or something to keep Mowing, it in the system. Like right. What I'm doing so some every week. Yeah, exactly. Some kind of disturbance. And, and if you don't, I mean, yeah, if you don't mow your lawn for a whole summer, you'll have plenty of seedlings growing mm -hmm. in your lawn. Right. And so it's it's uh So that's the idea, right? Like as you mow your lawn, you're grazing it. And exactly. Then that grass within a week is able to replace that biomass. Exactly. So even though the standing biomass uh -huh. is not that great the productivity ah, the replacement is high. Of, yeah. yeah. So yeah, that was, uh, that was huge, right? So Darwin's wrestling with this concept of why are there um, so few large mammals here in South America when it seems like there should be tons with all this vegetation. Yeah. And the other thing I like about this quote is he invokes the camel uh, <laughs> as a, uh, an emblem of the desert when really more modern takes on camel evolution mm -hmm. suggest that camels evolved in North America during the Pleistocene, the uh, the era sort of... Uh, Was it a glacier event? Like a snow yeah, adapted yeah, animal? Yeah, so the, the Pleistocene is the, uh, an epoch in our world's history when glaciers kind of uh, uh, advanced and receded um, you know, multiple times. And so the world was on average much colder then. And, and so the idea is that camels evolved in a colder environment and those adaptations actually served them really well when they moved away from North America and dispersed throughout, uh, the, uh, throughout the world. So they're thinking they're more like a tundra animal that right. feeds on the small vegetation, but yet snow banks. Oh. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah. So, so these are the really interesting things that Darwin was thinking about mammals. Um, I'd like to take a break, and when we return, I'd like to really focus on some of these amazing fossils that Darwin found and the risks that he went through to collect these fossils. You are listening to Discovering Darwin. Welcome back to Discovering Darwin. Uh, what we're going to talk about now is some of these amazing fossils that Darwin collected. So one of the things that we think about when Darwin is traveling around for those five years is that he shot and killed everything he could find 
And Sarah's going to talk to us later about the fact that he wanted to eat pretty much. Mm, delicious armadillo. That's all I'm telling you now. <laughs> he shot, Yeah, he ate many of the things that he killed. <laughs> but um, he was also pretty uh, influential in collecting um, fossil fossils and fossil uh, specimens throughout uh, South and Central uh, South America. And the the thing that's really amazing about some of these experiences it was one of the very very first encounters while they were traveling early on in the expedition within a couple of months of being in south america where they um they find along this riverbank a very famous uh embankment bones protruding from from the 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 water's edge and darwin clambers out there and starts digging furiously and pulling these bones from the embankment and gets a, uh, another uh, crewmate to help him and spends hours extracting these bones and hauling them back to the deck of the beagle. And Fitzroy is sort of amused by this. Um, his, the person who's on charge of the deck is really upset with Darwin because he's dirtying up the deck and filling it full of muddy bones. But what's impressive is that Darwin worked for hours until after dark hauling these bones in and and realizing the importance of them. It turns out it was this animal called a megatherium, which is a large extinct mammal that only one specimen was known. It was a, in a museum in Madrid. So this is the second complete skeleton of that specimen found. But that was the very beginning of Darwin's sort of uh, fascination with collecting fossils throughout his voyages. I mean, Darwin, uh, Josh, you have a story where he picks up another skull of a, a, a fossil animal that he finds. I do. Uh, and to set the stage for this, um, let's talk about how fossils and, and paleobiology kind of intersects with folklore. Mm -hmm. So James and, and Sarah, we've had conversations about the, the way in which, you know, uh, ancient peoples would find these, these fossils of different organisms and you find something that looks like a giant leg and you say, Oh, this must belong to an ancient race of, of giants or Titans. And, mm -hmm. and here's a story about how the world was created from this giant's bones mm -hmm. or something. Um, and, and James, you and I have talked about how the, uh, the skulls of, uh, elephants were suggested. It's been suggested that they, sort of form the basis of the myth of Cyclops, right? Because right. um, the nasal cavity of that skull looks like an eye socket. Right in the center right in of the, the front. Head. Right yeah. in the center, yeah. right. I will put a picture on the uh, blog spot, which I should, sorry, Josh, I'm going to plug no. our discoveringdarwin.blogspot.com website where you can see many new uh, images to support some of these uh, ideas that we're talking about. Sorry, go ahead, Josh. Okay, so I have here uh, a quote that actually you provided the original was in spanish but uh <laughs> thankfully james you used google translate google translate i had to, my friend google translate it for me because uh, i'm an american and so this is uh, uh largely going to sound like nonsense but uh you'll get some of the information from this and how it pertains to thoughts about these these bones and where they came from and so where did this quote come from this is from a man named cieza de leon who was a uh, uh, conquistador who uh, I think explored Peru and Ecuador, mm -hmm. I believe, yep. in the fifteen, the mid fifteen hundreds. Uh, 
Dr. Jeremy Payton would have probably some more information. <laughs> more to say. And so he, he also would mock the Google Translate. Yeah, Let's just would. put that out there. But he's also, this guy is reacting to the fact that, and, and this is what Darwin also experienced, that you could find, with a little bit of effort, not much, large bones scattered in the countryside. They kind of just were everywhere. And so this is that translated uh, text. Keep in mind, this is from Google Translate. <laughs> Well, they say that being altogether involved in his damned sodomy came fire from the sky, fearful and very frightening, making great noise. From the from which came a resplendent angel with a sharp and very effulgent sword, with which in a single blow he killed them all, and the fire he consumed, that there were but a few bones and skulls, that for memory of the punishment he wanted God that remained without being consumed by the fire. This they say of the giants. Which we believe that happened, because in this part they say they have found and found very large bones. And I have heard from Spaniards who have seen pieces of molar who judged that to be whole weighed more than half a pound. And also they had seen another piece of bone from a quill, which is admirable thing to tell how big it was, which makes witness have passed. So this idea that in the past there was giants who um, engaged in sodomy. Right. <laughs> Therefore, they were smitten down. Sm Smit. Smote down. Smote. Smoten. Smote. Smackdown. Smackdown. They were smackdown. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and, and what was interesting, I think, in that quote is that God left the bones behind to remind others that this is... This could happen to you. Yeah, that this is what you did wrong. For sure. So this sets the stage for... Uh, the entry in The Voyage of the Beagle from November 26th, and I believe this is from 1833, I think so. Yeah. I set out on my return in a direct line for Montevideo, having heard of some giant's bones at a neighboring farmhouse on the Sarandis, a small stream entering the Rio Negro. I rode there accompanied by my host and purchased for the value of 18 pence the head of the Toxodon. When found, it was quite perfect. But the boys knocked out some of the teeth with stones and then set up the head as a mark to throw at. By a most fortunate chance, I found a perfect tooth, which exactly fitted one of the sockets in the skull, embedded by itself on the banks of the Rio Tercero. Tercero, I think. Jeremy Payton, be with me. <laughs> at the distance of about 180 miles from this place, um, I found remains of this extraordinary animal at two other places, so that it must formerly have been common. I found here also some large portions of the armor of a gigantic armadillo-like animal and part of the head of a mylodon. The bones of this head are so fresh that they contain, according to the analysis by Mr. T. Reeks, 7% of animal matter, and when placed in a spirit lamp, they burn with a small flame. Wow. So there's enough organic material still left? Whoa. That they could actually burn it. Yeah. The number of the remains embedded in the Grand Estuary deposit front which forms, uh, sorry, the Grand Estuary Deposit, which forms the pompous and covers the granitic rocks of Banda Oriental, must be extraordinarily great. And so he goes on to talk about uh, other stories about bones he's heard of, and the origin of such names as the Stream of the Animal, the Hill of the Giant, is obvious. And so, like you said, James, there are just fossils on this, uh, in this region of South America just scattered everywhere. Mm -hmm. And not just fossils, not not just, you know, teeth or, or bits of bone, like really intact fossils and fragments from really big animals. And this um, 
skull is a there's a beautiful in, uh, drawing of it made by this uh, engraver named Scarf who did all the drawings for the the report of the zoology of the beagle and where Owen took the time to an analyze all of these bones that Darwin sent back and sort of figure out what they were and who they're related to and this this thing is a beautiful uh, engraving we'll put the uh, drawing on the on the blog spot to look at and it's it's a weird animal, right? Because he thought it was maybe a capybara-like creature, a rodent. Uh, it was a chewing mammal. It was big. It was very big. And um, now we think it maybe is uh, more of an ungulate, more of a deer kind of animal, an ungulate than than a, a rodent. But it's a very weird animal that he found. And I think he didn't he collect like eleven different species of fossilized uh, animals that that Owen described he did and looking at the contents of uh this is from james's collected works of darwin right so volume four uh the zoology of the beagle in the contents there's a list of uh various uh fossil discoveries and i suppose are there associated plates that go with yeah. them uh toxodon um <laughs> macrochinia is that how we're gonna say it uh, big long macrochinia sure Macrochinina. Macrochinina? Macro. Macrochinia. Macrochinia. <laughs> okay, we're wrestling. We can have our friends from um, Common Descent podcast <laughs> tell right, us how this is, because they're our paleontologists. But that's friends. a really cool fossil, right? Because it, it was an odd fossil. They, he called it Big Llama. Owen did, because he thought it was more of a llama. Grande species. llama. But then, Sarah, you <laughs> well, pointed and, out. And then it had like. Um, but it had like a proboscis, like, like right, a, like a like a um, tapir nose, right, like a tapir nose. Think about like a a proboscis is what's on an elephant, right? Mm -hmm. So it's this kind of weird thing, and just so happened to be that just this week, as we were preparing for this, um, a new paper came out in Nature Communications that was trying to understand what the hell this thing was mm -hmm. and how it related to. It's big too. Yeah, it's big. I don't have the stats on it, but it's it's big. <laughs> I'll just say that until somebody <laughs> looks it up and tells me what it is. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it was really weird. And people had thought, yeah, maybe it belongs with the camels and the hippopotamuses, right? So that'd be like an arterodactyl. Um, and well, or no, maybe it's more like things that are like... Um, uh, rhinoceroses. Yeah, I think Darwin thought it was a rhinoceros. Yeah, horses. Yeah, exactly. Right, because it's um, odd-toed feet. Right, um, versus even toe, which is what you got in the other guys. And so, anyway, the, these folks were looking um, to try to get DNA, which of course we're talking about ancient DNA, which has a lot of challenges in the tropics. Which we've talked about how hard it is to fossilize in tropical conditions. Then imagine maintaining enough organic material that you can get DNA even harder. And so they had looked all over South America and found one in far southern um, Argentina that they were able to get some mitochondrial DNA, and that's the DNA that you inherit only from your mother, um, from some uh, collagen. Right. In a, in a, a toe, a, I think. Was it? Yeah. And anyway, so they, they did the analysis and found that it is most closely related to those perissodactyls, so horses rhinos, um, those kinds of guys, but it's not a member of that group. And that it would have diverged from those guys about 66 
million years ago. Wow. So this fossil represents an order. So at the level of taxonomic classification, so we have... Kingdom phylum order. Order. So really high level and went extinct during this period. Hmm. Complete, like it was only found in South America and went extinct at the end of this period. And because it was so odd, right? They could never figure out where to... Put Where it to put it? it right? Yeah, exactly. So now, I mean, again, all of these kinds of things could be modified. That's how science works. But this is kind of our our best guess right now of where it's going to fit. Here's what I love about that story. So here's Charles Darwin collecting this thing in the 1800s. And like you said, Sarah, this week or this month, yeah, a paper this comes week. out. They're trying to figure out exactly what this thing is. Exactly. And and they think they have, right? So right. It's, and and it's pretty similar to some of the, I, I mean, you know, again, it's just a weird, weird little mashup, not little, big mashup <laughs> animal that was just pretty, pretty difficult to classify. And the other thing is we're talking about this, you know, Owen was sitting here trying to say, oh, what? And I think you even use the word most related, James, mm-hmm. and that's probably just because that's how we think. Um, they're classifying, Owen is classifying things into groups, but with no like... No evolution. Action. Right. It's kind of amazing. And I realize that I think it's one of those things that makes you really think about how we do science is that we are within our own paradigm and that maybe things would be totally obvious to someone, someone alien that came here and looked at stuff we were doing, like, look at the thing you're doing and you don't even know why you're doing it. <laughs> um, it's pretty interesting to look back. But he wasn't, I mean, Owen was pretty good though, right? As he was, a, that's a, what I'm saying. Like, an that's what's kind was... of amazing is that, yeah, you are looking at the, observing these, these characteristics and thinking, well, they belong together. What does that even mean, mm-hmm. right? If you don't have relatedness. Um, and doing a pretty good job, right? Because mm-hmm. for the most part, there are a few tricky characteristics that can pop up in groups multiple times, but pretty damn good. So he Darwin found, I think, Josh, right, uh, 11 species of extinct animals. That's right. And of, of those, I think, if I recall, like one or maybe, well, there's a couple of them that already were known to science. The megatherium, this mm-hmm. is a ginormous ground sloth. I mean... How big was this thing, Josh? It was it was like tons and 20, 30 feet tall or some obscene size. Yeah, ridiculous. And so obviously you got to think about this too, right? We're all we when we think of sloths, we think of those cute little slow things that hang upside down from trees. Mm -hmm. These guys were not hanging upside down from trees, clearly, right? (laughs) So would have had to be a big tree. This this, uh, (laughs) the Lestodon armatus. had an estimated mass of three to four tons. Yeah. Three to four tons. Yeah. And and it's just huge. And this thing, uh, they think, just walked up to trees, pulled their limbs down, and fed on their leaves that they wanted. And it was a big animal. And and I looked in the records, and when Darwin sent the fossils to Owen to to, uh, analyze and, and make sense of, it was six casks of bones. So he shipped them in casks, like I guess old bourbon casks or wine casks wine, or whatever. Yeah. They probably had all their uh, food on board in casks, probably. right? So it's salted beef yeah, and all true. that stuff, probably reusing. Uh, and that's the other thing I think is most impressive about this is that Darwin you know, worked really hard to make to collect these specimens and then pack them up 
and he constantly Const- shipped, yeah, that's... shipped them back to England and did not realize that he was generating amazing findings. Yeah. And he was getting a reputation. In fact, Hooker, I think, published a letter that Darwin had written him as a scientific paper without Darwin's <laughs> consent. <laughs> Man, nice. Because he's, yeah, he was a little upset because it was just a, a letter saying, hey, I saw hey, this, I saw, I saw this. Cool this. Thing. Yeah. Exactly. But the, um, I just want to... I wish, it would be so curious to know, like, and maybe you know this, James, just from all the stuff that you've looked at, is to think about, like, what tonnage of stuff Darwin sent back over the voyage. Because he was constantly, and and it was something that all naturalists did because of the fact that a ship could go down and you could lose everything. So you're kind of spacing things out and trying to send them. I mean, that's what happened to, we've talked a little bit about Wallace, Wallace, right? And that was, like, pretty, pretty epic. Um. So, gosh, I'd just be curious to know how much, when you think about, like, this is just these fossil bones and how heavy those would have been going in six, you said, casts? Six casts, yeah. Six casts. That's a hard word, (laughs) two words to put together. Well, the thing, too, is that um, I try to find um, in his correspondence, because I was interested in that, how, how does he move his specimens when does he decide what gets shipped back to england and what does he stay with him until mm-hmm. he gets back but he was constantly shipping stuff back and you have to recognize he didn't have too, much room he didn't to, have much to room. keep with him you and, know and the thing we don't think about is that as he sailed along south america there was a lot of other ships yeah. coming and going and so they would just load it up and have it yeah. go back and so and then hooker when he got back when he got to that stuff got to him, he would distribute it amongst people he thought could make sense of it. It always makes you feel like a loser too. Every time you read Darwin's stuff, because you think of it, like you look back and we have so many of his letters that he sent to people. So he's constantly out exploring, dealing with hardships, finding fossils, discovering new species, writing letters and sending stuff back a way to make yourself feel like you are the biggest loser because you're watching Game of Thrones. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Speaking of which, I, w- I do want to read, this is a little long, it's from his diary, but it's an account of when he went out to fo- collect fossils, and it's, it gives you a sense of, you know, part of this season, I'm trying to impress upon all of you guys who listen to us, that Darwin was a badass. As a 22-year-old 22 guy, he was unafraid, and he worked his butt off. And this well, is a- you know, males kind of at that age, Yeah, the frontal... Cerebral. <laughs> it's not totally, <laughs> not totally, totally formed, there. right? So here's a here's a uh, entry in his diary. Um, it, it's not in the voyage, but it, it says, "Early in the morning, the captain with a large party landed in four whale boats. Dinner for all hands was taken, as it was attended to work at the landmark all day and return in the evening. King and I went in one direction to geologize, which means collect <laughs> fossils." And Mr. Binone and another to shoot, which means to go collect food for dinner. During our walk, I observed the wind had freshened and altered its point, but I paid no further attention to it. When we returned to the beach, we found two of the boats hauled up high and dry and others gone on board. The captain, two hours previously, had had some difficulty in getting off, and now the line of white breakers clearly showed the impossibility. (laughs) It was an unpleasant prospect to pass the night with thin clothes on the bare ground, but it was unavoidable. So we made the best of it. Mr. Stokes and Johnson were left in command and made what arrangements they could. At night, no supper was served out, as we were 18 on shore and very little food left. We made a sort of tent or screen with the boat sails and prepared to pass the night. 
it was very cold. And you have to remember, they're way down in Patagonia, mm-hmm. like way down close to the South Pole. Um, and it was very cold. But by all huddling in a heap, we managed pretty well till the rain began. <laughs> and then we were sufficiently miserable. <laughs> Day two. At daybreak, things wore a little, a very bad appearance. The sky looked dirty, and it blew a gale of wind. A heavy surf was roaring on the beach. And what was the worst of all, the men thought this weather would last. The beagle was pitching very deeply, and we thought it not impossible she would be forced to slip cable and run out to sea. We afterwards heard she rode it out well, but that some of the seas went right over her. Although having 120 fathoms of cable out, it was now time to look after our provisions. We breakfasted on some small birds and two gulls and a large hawk, which was found dead on the beach. (laughs) (laughs) Our dinner was not much better, as it consisted of a a fish left by the tide (laughs) and the bones of the meat, which we were determined to keep for the next day. In the evening, however, to our great joy and surprise, the wind lulled, and the captain in his boat was able to come within some hundred yards of the coast, and he then threw over a cask with provisions, which some of the men swam out to and secured. This was all very well, but against the cold at night, there was no remedy. Nothing would break the wind, which was so cold that there was snow in the morning on the Sierra de Ventata. I never knew how painful cold could be. I was unable to sleep even for a minute from my body shivering so much. The men also who swam for the provisions suffered extremely from not being able to get warm again. Uh, Then another day, so now it's the third day out there. By the middle of the next day, we were all on board the Beagle, and most thoroughly after our little adventure, we did enjoy our, its luxuries. In the evening, we moved our anchorage and stood. So there, uh, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> so, to me, that's just the, crazy. Yeah, that that is the worst camping trip ever. <laughs> and the worst part about it is they the 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 seas calmed enough for them to come out almost ashore, and instead of making an effort to get everybody and get them back to the boat. You're like, here's, here's some stuff. Here's some stuff. Yeah, exactly. I hope you live. <laughs> Ho- hope you can swim out here and get it. I love the idea of them walking along the shore and finding a dead bird. I, know, I was like, yeah. there's dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and yet that does not show up in the, the Voyage of the Beagle, right? So, so we've talked about this before, how Darwin does not really crow about his ability to withstand some pretty hardship, I mean, pretty strong hardships. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I could stand two nights of... Of winter with no food in. If it even uh, rains when I'm camping, I'm. I know I'm whining. (laughs) So that was one of his efforts to collect fossils, and and that was uh, uh, and 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 failure in that. All right, so Darwin collects a lot of fossils and gets um, some pretty amazing fossils, right, Josh? Right, yeah, especially that Toxodon. He was really thrilled about that, Um, and it just sort of. To, to go back to the quote that I read a few minutes ago, reiterates how common these fossils were because the kids just set it up and they were using it as a target, <laughs> yeah. right? They were throwing rocks at it. Mm-hmm. So he finds, and one of the, on the list of uh, Owen's uh, descriptions, there's a, a horse fossil, yep. which is really, and even in uh, the Voyages of the Beagle, Darwin recognizes that was an unusual find. So as an aside, I'm photographing, um, as part of my summer research project, 
Audubon plates from the 1800s. And I've started to photograph the quadrupeds of North America, which is Dar uh, Audubon's drawing, excuse me, which is Audubon's drawings of all the mammals of North America. And the librarian said to me, hey, I don't understand. In that uh, collection of drawings, there's no horses. And I'm like, well, that's because horses were not native to North America. Which at is, that time. At that time, right. <laughs> so they were reintroduced to, to North America by the Spanish conquistadors. But Darwin also knew that, that horses were extinct in Central, South, and North America. But yet he found a horse tooth. Yeah, he found a molar. Which threw him off, but also made him think about the, the fact that species can appear and then disappear mm -hmm. and have this sort of weird... Uh, relationship with the geography, right? Mm -hmm. I thought that was weird, right? In terms of the species list that's in that book. Yeah, everything else is a, a giant, right? Uh, we, we have things from these really big um, uh, armadillos. That's the glyptodon. Right. I love those things. Describe them for us, Josh. Uh, well, they, they vary, I guess, in terms of their size. There are several species within the genus, but... Um, they are giant armadillos native to South America and Central America, uh, although they did reach up into North America. And some of them could weigh in excess of 2,000 kilograms, which is around about 4,400 pounds. Um, and Wait, 4,400 pounds? Pounds. What does that yeah. mean to you? Uh, well, I was thinking about this as we were preparing for the episode, and that sounded like, you know, the weight of an automobile. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, my uh, Chevy Cavalier weighs 2,800 pounds. So <laughs> these, these things are larger than my, uh, you know, mid-size. Wait, uh, they're about the size of your car. Yeah. But no, twice as like, dense. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. in yeah. terms of size. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're the size of, of a, a, a sm small-ish sedan, right? Mm -hmm. But in terms of their weight and density, they're, they're massive. And that's because they have these giant bony shells that serve as a defense mechanism, right? For, to protect them from something. So that right there makes you sort of draw the, the, the next thought, and that is, what are they trying to protect themselves from? They're mm -hmm. already the size of a car. Right. And some of them have these crazy, like, club-like tails that they can bash with things spikes with. spikes on it. Yeah. Yeah. So they, and that's what's really cool to Darwin, is that he would find these... Uh, fossils of giant mammals with shells, which is weird, and on those shells that would remind him of the armadillos that he would find today. That there was a couple of different species of armadillos, and then Sarah will tell us how delicious they are later. <laughs> but there was, um, and so he he started to connect extinct species to extant species, right? right. This relationship between what we see in the past and what we see today. Yeah. Armadillos that are giant horses in a place where there aren't supposed to be horses, horses. or at least there mm -hmm. aren't horses now. Right. It's pretty weird. Pretty weird. And giant sloths, which look like the sloths today, but they're mm -hmm. very large. And some other really amazing animals that Yeah, so the, the yeah, when you think about it, we've had the big, the, the big yeah, the big llama camel thing. We've had uh, we've talked about the Toxodon, which is like kind of rhinocerosy, probably I think is what I would call it. I, mm -hmm. I don't know, a mix between a rhinoceros and a hippopotamus, maybe is kind of what it looks like. That well, kind of stout body, yeah. Like, but it has the face of a tapir, right? It's like a, it's like no, a, that's the mar oh, yeah, the right. thing we can't say. <laughs> the the M word, the animal that must not be named. 
Wasn't there, I'm like, going to defiantly speak about it, though. <laughs> what about the mammals of unusual size? Well, they were all unusual size. However, the thing that got me when I was prepping for this uh, podcast was that we hear these are the ones that we hear about, right? Are the glyptodonts and and these um, the toxodon, and they're cool because they're weird and like don't exist anymore. However, we also had really, really giant rodents, rodents of unusual size. <laughs> for those of you who are friend, uh, enjoy. The Princess Bride. Um, so just <laughs> inconceivable. To, indeed. <laughs> um, so the largest proposed known rodent. Oh, this is a hard one too. Josepho Artigasia monisi. Sure, we'll call it that. Um, was a thousand kilograms. A rodent. And then there, there's one that's extinct that, you know, they estimate at tw- 200 kilograms that would have been related to the current capybara. So some of you may be familiar with capybaras. They're the biggest living rodent. So and they're aquatic. When I was about eight years old, <laughs> I went to a, a little uh, sideshow fair in Florida and they had this, you know, sideshow come see the crazy animal, crazy things, you know, the woman with, you know, I don't know, could swallow swords or whatever. And they had the, the world's giant rat. And, and, and the, the paintings were these giant, you know, Norway rats yeah. chewing on human <laughs> bodies. And so I go in there, pay my, you know, 80 cents to go in there, 75 cents. And I go in and I look and there's a capybara sitting there chewing on a carrot. Nice. It's like, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and even though, I mean, those are big. Those are 60 about 60 kilos, right? So then if if you're talking about there were other rodents that were a thousand kilos, yeah, that wow. is, um, that's the stuff nightmares are made of. With teeth that never stop growing. <laughs> okay, so um, what you guys are describing to me, which I think is really intriguing, is that why were the South American extinct mammals, right? Pleistocene era mammals, why were they so friggin' big? Maybe you know, Josh, Josh, we should. You, well, okay. yeah. Sorry. I was going to suggest we take a break. Oh, take a break. Yes. Let's take a break. And when we come back, Sarah is going to explain everything to me because I'm <laughs> dumb as a shoe. You're listening to. Josh, what are we listening to? Discovering James. <laughs> no, we're not. You're listening to Discovering Josh. <laughs> and I feel like I learned more about you when we do these episodes. Welcome back. You're listening to Discovering Darwin. Uh, today we're talking about mammals uh, that Darwin encountered on his travels. And we we went into the break saying we promise you we would talk about why the heck these South American mammals were so big. So, hey, Josh. Look at the size of that mammal. What do you know? Why are things so big? Uh, necessity. <laughs> Because there were saber-toothed tigers, so you're better <laughs> off growing big to protect yourself from those saber-toothed tigers and short-faced bears. Oh. One. I think it is interesting to think about what the heck was the selective force. So, yeah, sometimes getting big means escaping predators, right? Because predation is sometimes limited by gape size but and your ability to take that thing down. So, 
in the you know the idea that in the evolution of organisms there's no direction but right. yet there's been a reoccurring pattern of mm -hmm. gigantism, right? The dinosaurs got bigger and bigger mm -hmm. and bigger, mm -hmm. and then they went extinct. And then <laughs> mammals showed up, and mammals got bigger and bigger and yeah. bigger. So what, what, what's that about? Why, why would mammals get so big? You're thinking it's a predator uh, ex escape? But you, you, it takes a while to get big. It's, it's not something you can just get big. Right, yeah. And so... I certainly am not going to say I have the answers to much of any of this. However, <laughs> oh no, you should say you have the answer. Oh, I have the answer. I have not drunk enough. Um, <laughs> say it defiantly. <laughs> so Sarah gave us <laughs> Sarah gave us these great glasses that say "I drink and I know things." So therefore, Sarah, you know things. Yeah, yeah, because I well need to drink more. So, uh, <laughs> however, um, there was another kind of interesting paper that came out. out um, within the last few months and that looked at trying to understand exactly, yeah, why did so many of these megafauna get so big um, during this period? And so maybe just to give people a little background to think about what was the climate of, of this time? So if we go back to the, the Eocene was kind of the first time we really start seeing placental how mammals. About how long ago? So that's around, say, 58 million years ago. Oh, okay. wow. That's a long time. Yeah. So um, we're going to do a quick brief So dinosaurs here, are dead. Dinosaurs are dead. Yes. <laughs> and so we're at the Eocene, which is kind of the next period after the dinosaurs die. And it is, um, it's pretty warm. It's pretty tropical. Tropical, like, conditions go down to, like, 50 degrees south. Um, south America, Antarctica, and Australia are still linked together. So we have movement of organisms across those three continents. So we have a big continent. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So big continent. And... Um, as we go through that period, we say now we're about, um, about 35 million years and the, <laughs> wait, just 20 just, million you years, know, like that. We're going to go quickly through this. Okay. Uh, so 35 million years ago, the climate starts cooling. We have kind of an ice house period during that time. So can I, sorry, I didn't Yeah, go you. ahead. So I've always been curious when I was a, a student, like why did the earth go from warm and cool and warm and cool? It's this whole idea, right? The Earth's tilt kind of right. oscillates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's several different components of the actual orbit of the Earth will go from more elliptical to more circular. The Earth will actually, its axis will, the, so we all know that the axis of the Earth is tilted about 23 degrees. That itself will wobble like a like a top, right? Yeah, so imagine you guys have a, a, a top mm -hmm. and you spin it and throw it in the ground and watch it. It doesn't just stay in place. Yeah. It kind of changes its angle to exactly. the, the ground. It's exactly. like that final scene in Inception. Yes. So okay. are those variations in orbit uh, of, of the Earth around the sun called Milankovitch cycles or Milankovitch yes. cycles, yes. The, the wobble on the... Axis? I think it's... it's Oh, no, I'm not oh, going to remember right. which is which. It's the wobble of the tilt of the Earth. Okay. okay. Yeah. But what you get is all of these... So then on larger scale cycles, then you get all of these things kind of coming together so that you start getting these longer periods of cooler times or warmer times. And then on top of that, you'll have those those... Milankovitch cycles that will be more like Which ice are, ages and if stuff If you like want to clearly see that representation of that, look at the White Cliffs of Dover. Mm, where you see mm -hmm. these beautiful lines along the White Cliffs of Dover, which represent the times the Earth was shifting in that climate. Yeah, yeah. 
So, you know, we enter this cool time. Um, when we start looking at the, the fossils, we start noticing um, teeth that are more meant for grazing. So we're seeing that it's drying up. And so really, th it's at this point that we really start getting on this bandwagon of things continuing to get bigger and bigger. Like we have to get to the point where we're in this kind of savanna grassland environment. So, so dinosaur, oh, I'm sorry, Josh. Um, I was just going to say, so, so things get cooler. Mm-hmm. Uh, that more favors, arid as well. That that favors grasses because mm -hmm. grasses mm -hmm. like it kind of dry and yep. cool. and cool. Okay. Yeah. But you know, my recollection too is that larger dinosaurs got that way because they had to ferment vegetation, right? Mm -hmm. So they had to have that. So we think about cows with the four chambered stomachs, but if you're going to eat vegetation that has mm -hmm. lots of cellulose, you have to break it down. Right. You have to ferment it, mm -hmm. and so selection favored you to be a bigger size mm -hmm. so you could just take the time to, to digest that plant. Yeah. Material. So the thing that was so interesting to me about this paper that I read was that they looked at both um, ant eaters that were ex existing at that time. They were big too, but not the big that we're talking about with these ground sloths and stuff like that. And they looked at them and they seemed to see that there seemed to be more of an evolutionary constraint, meaning that like, hey, if you belong to a certain lineage of ant eaters, you just weren't going to get big. You just couldn't because all of these evolutionary constraints. Or there's no need to get big. Well, and that's the other thing. I think it's um, maybe not so much the need, but the constraint on why. So oh. when you think about an ant eater, let's think about what they do. What do they eat? Ants. You're right, James. Yes. Good. <laughs> Can I go to the head of the class? <laughs> yeah. And so when you think about um, ants as a food source, you got a couple problems, right? One is that you have things that don't have a lot of like lipids or like high energy. So wait, you got uh, you got exoskeleton and right. form formic acid. That's the thing, right? Defenses of the ants, right? right? And so you have to somehow deal with that, metabolize that. Those things are pretty costly, right? And also to like avoid the defense of the ants, it makes more sense for you to move around from anthill to anthill, right? So when they get fired up and start getting defensive, move on to the next hill. Mm. Well, if you're moving around a lot, being big is not very efficient. Okay. And also with anteaters, the ancestral condition is to be arboreal, actually. And that's another constraint then on, or, or I shouldn't say the whole group is that those that they found did not get big had an ancestral c condition of being arboreal, which again, you can't, you don't want to be a big fatty <laughs> running around <laughs> the trees, right? Truth. Yes. So, but then compare that to the sloths, right? Which got ginormous as Josh has given us several examples of. So for these guys who got big, why did they get big? How could they get big? Um, these authors made an argument. There's a few things going on. So one thing is the one that you brought up, James, which is essentially that, hey, you can support being big if you have a really big gut and you are really getting everything you can out of that, which we, and, you know, actually current sloths today have, um, f do they have foregut or hide and gut fermentation? I'm not oh, sure. No. One or the other. Oh, I can't wow. remember. Um, so they, they actually have a chamber that will ferment so they can get, they can get more out of it. The other argument they, they make is that, okay, if you're really big and you have kind of for poor food quality available to you, then you want to lower your metabolic rate, right? You don't want to be like a hummingbird, right? You want to be like the big sloth. old, like a like sloth. A sloth. <laughs> 
And so as you get bigger, remember we're in a cold environment. As you get bigger, you have more thermal inertia. You can maintain heat better than if you're small. And so that may have also been, um, you know, a thing that might have con- contributed to selecting for these these big, big sloths. So we had this, we had the period of time where all these mammals, the megathon, megafauna got really big compared to our megafauna today right they're much larger Mm -hmm. and then they all went extinct yeah why why did they go extinct was it because predators or was it because of climate change a darwin suggests and i thought it was pretty impressive that this guy you know 1800s recognized the importance of droughts in Mm -hmm. his in journal he talks about how there was an important drought that just wiped out the cattle. Of course, cattle are introduced species, but um, he spoke about how the climate was so variable that there was enough variation in the climate to create a drought that all the cattle of the of, of that area were, were destroyed. Mm-hmm. And he wondered whether or not climate itself could create the extinction mm-hmm. of mammals. What do we think drove... I mean, there was some thought, right, of, of humans coming across the Bering Strait in the, of that time period, and then we just killed everything. The Pleistocene, a Blitzkrieg hypothesis, is that still thought of as a, a legitimate explanation? Yeah, so um, there are... In, in my reading and prepping for today's episode, I found th- three hypotheses uh for extinctions during the pleistocene uh one as you as you pointed out climate change uh the second uh i found the prehistoric overkill hypothesis which was put forward by paul martin in a 1967 paper um and still has its adherence Mm -hmm. today and it's got that sexy name blitzkrieg hypothesis right oh blitzkrieg i found overkill but yeah, yeah okay um, and then the third is that uh, the extinction of larger megafauna like woolly mammoths and mastodons, which exerted a strong measure of control on local ecosystem mm-hmm. conditions, actually led to successional changes within vegetation communities, mm-hmm. which led to altered fire regimes, uh, led to changes in what um, mammals could be supported in those ecosystems. And so... Uh, it, it seems like uh, there are supporters of kind of an interaction between all hmm. three of these things. Hey, can, can we back up for a second, sure. Josh? Yeah. Mast- you said mastodons and mammoths. You, mm-hmm. What's the difference between those two? Okay, so a uh, both both are in the uh, clade Elephantomorpha, but uh, mastodons are more uh, basal in this clade, so so they are more ancestral. Uh, ancestral. Mm. And mammoths are uh, more derived. That's hairy, right? Mammoths are more hairy. Mm, well, both are hairy. Oh, really? And both have tusks. Oh, okay. And both are pretty darn big, although mastodons are smaller, um, somewhat. I mean, we're talking about giant plastic <laughs> yeah. mammoths. Elephant right? sized creatures. Yeah. So I'm trying, um, like, do, am I getting gonfathiers and, and mastodons confused right now? Do mastodons also have the big shovel no that's lower the, that's a gonf yeah that's the gonf okay yeah so uh yeah, the elephant gonf the, the, whole, the whole evolution playing with elephant forms if you look at the the different fossil records of mm-hmm. elephant like creatures it's like they were like let's try this let's try that yeah. let's try this <laughs> it's we'll, pretty crazy yeah we'll put some pictures let's, up i mean in terms of if you 
don't believe in evolution. I'm sorry. You Why are you look, listening? Yeah. <laughs> but if you're looking taking the, angry notes feverishly, <laughs> you're listening defiantly. <laughs> if you look at the diversity of elephant forms, right? They are amazing. And you're right. There's these these things that have shovels for for teeth and and tusks and and whatever. And it's easy to compress these things, right? So there were various species of of mammoths. I have in my notes there were 10 species that have been recognized. Um, and I have four species of mastodons and there's variation within those different mm-hmm. plates, But what's the difference right? between mammoth and mastodon? Okay, so the from what I can tell, the the differences lie again in size. Uh, mammoths uh, stand about four meters at the shoulder, uh, weigh uh, from eight to 12 tons. Damn. Um, yeah, it's pretty big. Uh, and then mastodons are a little smaller. They stand about uh, 2.3 to 2.8 meters at the, at the shoulder. That is still nine feet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's that, still an elephant. pretty darn big. Um, and they, they weighed somewhere in the range of seven to 11 tons. So more than my Cavalier. <laughs> Wait, seven to eleven. That's a big variation. There's a big variation, yeah. Um, and the other difference, well, ten species, I, right? Right. Uh, so the other trait that you can look at is their teeth, which kind of speaks to the environment in which they lived. So mammoths are more grassland dwellers, and so their teeth are uh, sort of. Uh, let's see, they have teeth that are adapted for feeding on uh, fibrous foods like grasses. Uh, whereas mastodons, it's thought that they were more woodland-dwelling organisms. The, the mammoth's teeth look like the sole of a running shoe, right? Kind of, yeah. yeah. It's kind of mm-hmm. flat with like this weird serragation. Like wavy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where um, the mastodon, you said, look like little breasts. So I think that these, uh, uh, you know, 16th and 17th uh, century naturalists were kind Way of... Way too repressed. Kind of, kind of repressed, right? <laughs> and so they, they were looking at these teeth and, and someone, one guy said to another guy, hey, don't you think that looks like breasts? <laughs> nipples more specifically? Yes. Little nipples all over. Little nipples all over. That's what I see. Uh, I saw mountains. But yeah, I can see boobs now. Okay. Well, Grand Tetons. <laughs> <laughs> and so those those uh, nipple-like projections uh, near the crown of the teeth on the mastodons uh, are thought to be adaptations for feeding on leafy uh, f- materials from forests. So, so browsers rather than grazers. Exactly. Ooh. Exactly. Good. Good. Yes. Um, so uh, there are some differences, and the clearest difference I think that we can observe is in their teeth. Um, and so by sort of superimposing what we know about mammals that dwell in these different environments, we can get a sense of where these guys lived. Now, mastodons are found throughout North America and uh, into and into South America, but yeah. nowhere else. Wait, wait. What about, oh, okay, not Siberia. No. no, just mammoths. Oh, okay. Mammoths. So mammoths are more widespread um, throughout Africa, uh, uh, Siberia, or around the world. And I thought that was a pretty cool little tidbit that, that mastodons are definitely a new world group uh, of organisms. Oh. Yeah. And so 
Further, it's cool to think about mastodons living in Kentucky. Yes, I said Kentucky, uh, the <laughs> Appalachian Mountains. Mm-hmm. And so we have uh, pretty good records of mastodon fossils from a place in Kentucky in the northern part of the state called Big Bone Lick State Park. I love that place. Yes. Not that I've been there. I just love the name of it. Right. And Darwin mentions it in Origin of Species. It, it's well. It's, oh yeah, it, yeah. We talked about it. Yeah. It really is the birthplace of. Uh, uh, I'll say paleontology in the u.s because i don't know about north american paleontology i don't know if they were canadian like french canadians who were like really into digging up fossils uh but this is an area where there were a ton of sulfur springs and the resultant salts at those sulfur springs sort of drew in large mammals uh, across the landscape to this place so like where a they hunter could just... putting out a salt lick Exactly. Attract deer. Exactly. Yeah. So they're going to these riverbeds, and and the rocks near the riverbeds are salty, and they're just licking up that salt uh, <laughs> and dying, and then apparently. falling in a hole, <laughs> and then falling down and dying <laughs> to, be, you, to be discovered later by uh, Lewis and Clark and and Thomas Jefferson, who so, had uh, an obsession with Big Bone Lick. So in Kentucky, the 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 trap is not tar like nope. you see in California. Right here, it's the the Mammoth Cave, right? The the, the karst cave system they would fall in a hole how would they get in Bo- big bone lick why would, do they fall in holes in well hole? big bone lick and mammoth cave are are yeah, they're separated totally different, right but i mean saying what was big bone lick trapping them what was trapping them uh, was it not holes in the ground well i think there is some karst topography there mm-hmm. so so limestone uh uh geology kind of uh, dominates northern and central Kentucky, and so that means that you'll have sinkholes and caves and caverns and things, uh, the same processes that made Mammoth Cave and, and other cave systems around the world. Um, and so I'm not actually sure how, what killed the, the animals that went to the, 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 the salt licks there at Big Bone Lick. I thought it was they fell in holes. It, it could be. It, could, it certainly could be. Yeah. Um, but regardless, there's a, a really kind of overwhelming uh, abundance of these fossils at Big Bone Lick. Um, and so Thomas Jefferson, as we've mentioned, I think, on the program before, mm-hmm. was, in addition to being a uh, U.S. president, a, an ardent naturalist. And, and in the musical Hamilton. And in the musical <laughs> Hamilton, where he's kind of a jerk. I know. I kind of wanted to start sing, singing right there, but I... <laughs> you should. We should have a cabinet battle right here. <laughs> uh, so Jefferson was kind of obsessed with the the size of North American animals, uh, historic animals. And we got the biggest animals. They're huge. Uh, Look at better, my fossils. Better than your European animals, which are wimpy. And so he was in this sort of duel with Comte de Buffon who basically said, hey, look, new world animals, not as cool as old world animals. We've got the best animals here. And yeah, maybe in the the colonies you have these uh, really big bugs and really big lizards and snakes and things. But over here where (laughs) people are civilized and animals are good, we had the best mammals. Thomas Jefferson was convinced because of the bones and tusks of mastodons that were found at Big Bone Lick, that somewhere out in the west of the U.S., the, the, the unexplored by Europeans, west, <laughs> that there must be a mastodon, which is part of the impetus for sending Lewis and Clark West, which oh. is pretty cool. <laughs> to find a mastodon? That was one of their or many missions, yeah. Mammoth or big things. Yep. Well, you know... It goes back to our idea that we find these fossilized remains, we have to make sense of them. And either we have, like you spoke earlier, 
Josh, of explanation of, you know, the ancient people or ancient creatures that were destroyed and that's the remains. Or they actually still exist, but we have to find them. They're, right. like, it, they're somewhere in the wild and, and until we get there and then we'll find them. Because neither one of those, I mean, one model deals, deals with extinction because, you know, God killed everything. But the other model is, yeah, they're still here. We just have to find them. And that's interesting because Jefferson was, by all accounts, a really good scientist and naturalist, right? Like, if you guys have ever been to Monticello, it it just is this architectural feat. And the, the tour guides and docents there go on and on about Jefferson's interests in, in na- the natural world and, and things like that. He even had a tusk of a mastodon on display there at mm. Monticello, um, which you can still see today. And it's gigantic, right? And it's right from Big Bone Lick. Again, mastodons uh, were in Kentucky, which just right. blows my mind. Um, so, yes, uh, I guess that's my long-winded way of saying that uh, mastodons and mammoths were different and they were big. <laughs> but okay. Sarah, Sarah. But we started from three hypotheses, right? Right. About exactly. how these things went extinct. Right. right. Okay. How, how did they go extinct? Okay. So, climate, so you had climate, people, people, and remind me of the third one that the uh, extinction of mammoths and mastodons, which is how we got That's onto this got. tangent, okay. um, <laughs> that the, the extinction of these large and numerous uh, uh, megafauna sort of served as a control mechanism that altered plant succession. And so you kill those mastodons and mammoths, which are grazing forests for the mastodons and grazing grasslands Mm -hmm. for the mammoths. You take those out of the equation. Then what happens to those plant communities over time? But does that kick the can down the road? Because you didn't explain why they went extinct. But is it, but is it classic succession, right? Which is that, or some versions of classic succession, which is that, you know, one group comes in and changes the environment to make it actually not hospitable to it, but to the Mm, next thing that's going to come in. So I think that's probably the premise of that hypothesis, right? And so one of the, the, uh, I guess the fourth meta hypothesis is that it's some, some combination of all three of these that perhaps humans made it to North America, altered landscapes, altered the numbers of, climate of these large of these large happening. animals yeah. and then climate change was happening on top of that which further kind of affected mm-hmm. the the ability of these mastodons to survive because i think the the best predictor of extinction was uh reproductive rate right right exactly so the the longer the slower your reproductive rate the more likely you were to go extinct, which is also a common thing with size, right? The bigger you are, the longer it takes you to reach maturity, right? You kind of have two, this is um, life history strategies, right? If you want to look at two ends of continuum, you have two options. You can be like rabbits and mature quickly and make lots of them and get them out and move on, right? Or you can be like a mammoth and mature slowly, or let's say an elephant, something that's still around that we can think about. So like two years gestation period? Right. Right. And And that you have to reach a certain, you know, you're going to have to take a long time before you even mature to be able to reproduce. And so that it does, I mean, again, not being an expert on any of this stuff, but just having read some of it, what seems to be most um, parsimonious for me is this idea that climate change was happening. You know, I mean, when you think about, you know, humans um 
10,000 years ago was a big deal for us because that's when we started farming in a lot of places. Why did we start doing it then? Well, we'd probably been doing it for a while. It's just the climate finally stabilized enough. So you have these climate changes happen. You have humans pressing out throughout the world and putting some hunting pressure on these animals that are ginormous and have really, really long reproductive periods. It seems like it's just lots of little dominoes were stacked up for these guys. You know, that you saw this trend of giant mammals mm-hmm. and then they went, blink, went extinct really quickly. Yeah, and I think, um, to me, the other thing that was, like, really interesting that I'm not going to remember the source right now, but um, said that um, all mega mammals, which was, and I I can't remember how they defined this, but this was 37 species, most large mammals, that was 46 species present during the the kind of late Pleistocene, so 800,000 years ago to the Holocene, became extinct in South America, including two orders again we talked about before that the 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 uh macrochenia (laughs) was one and toxodon also represents an order that were endemic to south america and went extinct i mean that's kind of amazing the the one thing we haven't talked about in this extinction of the megafauna and i don't know how much it's i don't know what i think in terms of how important it was to to this extinction but Starting at about, I want to say, six million years ago and maybe completing around, say, two and a half million years ago, the Isthmus of Panama rose out of the water. And this allowed a bridge. An inter- yeah, an interchange between, because we, as we've kind of talked about, North America had its own distinct kinds of megafauna and South America had its own distinct kinds of megafauna. And um, so, like glyptodonts, right? Some of them got up into North America. Possums made it up and did great. Um, other uh, organisms came south and it seemed to be more carnivores coming south. Mm. And so maybe that also played a role. So so I think there's there were just so many things going on that for us to point to one smoking gun seems to be the um, epitome of hubris to say oh. it was that one thing. <laughs> hubris. Wow. Well, and... and- <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know hubris, young lady, and you are something. <laughs> uh, and so there's a study by some scientists named Bollinger and Lyman who put together databases of carbon dates of megafaunal finds uh, across the northeast of the U.S., right, and, and into Canada. So Ontario, New Jersey, New York, like that region of the world. And... Uh, what they found is that uh, most of the megafauna had disappeared before humans yeah. even oh, showed up on the there. scene yeah. in the uh, uh, the New World in North America. And definitely in South America because they got there a lot later. Right. And we were, you know, by the time we're at 10,000 years when there's humans in North America but not in South America, pretty much everybody's done in South America. And so... so, so yeah, go, go ahead, ahead, James. Now you can say, what What are we left with? The listeners are like, oh my God, my head is what spinning. Time? You've what, what just talked about, you've spun around me. I'm confused. What are we left with? We had the evolution of large mammals, right? Right. So mammals got bigger and bigger. Yep. And they got huge. I mean, crazy huge. And then they blinked out. Mm-hmm. And we but think they you... blinked out because not because humans came in and Probably killed not. them all. Maybe because climate change. Probably a part. Probably, probably apart. But 
you know, humans made it to North America, what, 12,000 years ago? 14, 12. Well, so the glaciers, right? Yeah. Right. The glaciers were at their maximum extent most recently about 18,000 to 20,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have in my notes that uh, mammoths went extinct 10,000 years ago in Siberia, uh, in 3750 BC in Alaska, uh, 1650. BC on Wrangell Island, which is yes. pretty recent. Yes. And, and, and they, they sequenced one of the baby mammoths they found there. And it was crazy. It was amazing. I won't go off on that tangent, but it was really cool. They found all this crazy genetic drift stuff that we predict today was clearly happening on that island. because so they're going to make a mammoth now? Yes. <laughs> well, and I read a study and I do not have it with me right now, uh, but just in hindsight that uh, uh, scientists were able to uh, use stem cells to uh, add mammoth DNA. I think it's woolly mammoth DNA to uh, Asian elephant cells <laughs> and and keep them in culture. So there's that. There's that. Uh, and then Jurassic for mastodons Park in your lifetime, exactly. Pleistocene Park. Pleistocene Park. <laughs> Pleistocene Park. Yeah. Uh, and then I have mastodons extinct ten to eleven thousand years ago. So you know. Climate, the, the, the global climate was changing and had been doing so over the period of about 8,000 to 10,000 years prior to the extinction of the Mastodon. Now, there is some, some pretty solid archaeological evidence of Mastodons uh, having been hunted by... Yeah, having like right. arrowheads in them and stuff. And, yeah. and scrape marks mm-hmm. that are right. conducive to, to being cleaned and, and field-dressed, yeah. right? So, yes, they some were, were probably probably hunted. at pretty low abundance already. Oh, yes, exactly. Yeah, like kind of that last thing. So to show over climate's the changing, vegetation communities are yeah. changing. These new uh, hairless apes are here yeah. with spears. Like, what? Like, what's a mastodon yeah. to do? Yeah. So you know, I think we should take a break now, and when we come back, I think I'd like to hear Sarah tell us about all the weird things Darwin ate. Delicious. Because it follows this idea that us naked apes like to kill and eat <laughs> you're listening to discovering darwin we'll be right back <laughs> i think Welcome back to Discovering Darwin, the podcast about what Darwin ate during his expeditions (laughs) across the world. Uh, And Sarah, you have a a menu that you said you would like to share with our listeners. Yeah, I I wanted to start with, um, so I read this article called Darwin the Gourmet by Diana Noyce, and um, she kind of chronicled his gastronomic obsession throughout his lifetime, um, starting with when he was a student at Cambridge. And he started this group called the Glutton Club, and it was comprised of himself, um, John Herbert, uh, Charles Whitley, Frederick Watkins, Jonathan Cameron, James Heaviside, Robert Blaine, and Henry Lowe. And what they would do, basically, is that they would come together and cook in their rooms over because they would have like open hearths um, so they could toast their bread and have their tea in the morning. But um, they would do this. I don't know what kind of frequency. 
Um, and but Darwin would go out and shoot what they would eat. So this was the start of what James kind of alluded to before, which is that Darwin would go out and shoot things for everybody to eat. Um, so some of the things that they ate included, this was for the glutton club, squirrel, various rodents, birds such as owl, hawk, and bittern. <laughs> uh, the owl kind of was the bridge too far when his <laughs> friend said it was, quote, indescribable. And that was kind of the end. Not positive. Not, not in a good way. Not in a good way. And but the best thing is he was still like kind of like romanticizing it while he was on the Beagle and sent a letter to um, Whitley, who had been in the Glutton Club. And he said, uh, my feelings overpower me when I think of the simple, the elegant Glutton Club and that day of victory and triumph and inward glorying, which some call sublime. But the wise know it to be the full round feeling of the contented dinner. <laughs> oh, Lord, what a jolly place Cambridge is. Cambridge is. But it is all over, so there's no use of thinking about it. I swear I would go without my dinner to sit by and see you three eat one. So I, I think this is you know, very fascinating because Darwin rallied up other people yes. <laughs> yeah, to eat weird things with him. Yeah, and apparently, I mean, I guess there were a lot of these like little dinner clubs in game- Cambridge at that time because I guess the, you know, the board plan was pretty minimal <laughs> at Cambridge. <laughs> you didn't need a faculty sponsor for yeah. anything? And or we don't have any dinner tonight. Yeah. Go we'll figure that out. And and so, um, so this was kind of a common thing, but uh, they were talking about how they wanted to go and and eat the wild meats that no one eats. And um, the funny thing is, of course, these were things that a lot of poor people <laughs> yeah. would have been well, eating. I, and anyway. birds of prey are not the most popular kinds of yeah. birds to eat. Yeah. Well, and there are protections on them now, right? No. Like you can't just <laughs> yeah. go shoot a hawk and eat it. <laughs> yeah. yeah no. But, you know, I mean, I think so this kind of like idea of I'm going to go out and shoot some stuff that we're going to eat followed Darwin on, on the beagle, right? Well, you know, I also think it goes to our argument about Darwin that we're trying to retell him as a very adventurous person. Yeah, right? yeah. He's one willing to try to experience. Yes. Yeah. And and so like he would like you said James would go ashore with his gun and would go hunt things and they would eat it. And a lot of times because you know the sailors were still stuck on the ship and they're mm-hmm. eating, you know, salt beef, hard tack. Hard tack yeah. exactly. So like this idea of bringing something from land was pretty exciting. And so he would always go with his gun and provide some meat for the ship, but he'd always save the skins and bones, right, to be sent back to be um, identified, <laughs> described. And so, like, one particular example he talks about was that he, you know, in um, Christmas of 1833, he went and got a guanaco that they ate for their Christmas dinner. So guanacos are like little llamas, right? Right, yeah. exactly. And they were very abundant in South yeah. Patagonia. Yeah, right. which I don't know if anybody else read that part of... A voyage where he talks about their interesting pooping habits. I, I didn't get that. I, I got the, they're curious and he would lay on the ground and attract them to him. And yeah, they would like, he claims they would go poop in the same place for like oh, so days he, at a time. So he'd shoot them when they came to I, poop? <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that part. That was just like a little side light, side note of um, something interesting. I, that but I he saw. was very successful as a hunter and, yeah. and purveyor of food for the, the crew. Yeah. So in terms of like what he would bring back to the crew, but also he was just super adventurous when he was out and about. And so I don't know if Josh, maybe you want to read that quote that I have in there from chapter six, um, t- the bottom of page one. Yes. Yeah, as, as t- 
<laughs> if you can bring it on. <laughs> we did not reach the post on on the trio tapalguin. <laughs> what the hell did Till you say? Till after it was dark at supper, from something which was said, I was suddenly struck with horror at thinking that I was eating one of the favorite dishes of the count country, namely a half-formed calf. Long before its proper time of birth, it turned Ooh. out to be puma. <laughs> the meat is very white and remarkably like veal in taste. Dr. Shaw was laughed at for stating that the flesh of the lion is in great esteem, having no small affinity with veal, both in color, taste, and flavor. Such certainly is the case with the puma. The gauchos differ in their opinion whether the jaguar is good eating, but are unanimous, are unanimous in saying that cat is excellent. <laughs> so, wait, they're eating a predator? Cats? Yeah. Pumas? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, a lot of times, so yeah, Darwin will just end up at a place. People are like, hey, here's some stuff. He's eating it. And he's like, what? <laughs> well, I guess it... I'm confused, I guess. I, I guess I thought that dark meat was the the more uh, oxygenated yeah. muscle. Mm -hmm. And so I'm surprised that, that Puma... Because veal is very light colored yeah. and um, soft. Yeah, so I don't, I don't know what the story is there. Yeah. There's, a, there's a story in a journal where uh, Fitzroy buys a Puma that's tied up alive. And they do kill oh. it and skin it and eat it. Mm. So, I mean, maybe, yeah, they, they mm. eat many different animals. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry, I just read the one from chapter five where he accidentally ate a prized specimen. Yeah, we definitely have to read that one. <laughs> okay. so, but that one's not a mammal. So we'll stick with mammals. We'll maybe end up with that one. So James, I had told these guys that I was, I was going to bring them a treat. And it was these, these, uh, these glasses, but James assumed that somehow I had procured armadillo for them because <laughs> it was a favorite of um, Darwin, one that he rather enjoyed. So this was in chapter four, and he said, In the morning, we had caught an armadillo, which, although a most excellent dish when roasted in its shell, did not make a very substantial breakfast and dinner for two hungry men. Um, and he liked this method of, of cooking so much that he, uh, when they got to the Galapagos, and I know this isn't a mammal, but because it applies the same cooking method, that he oh, would tortoises, yeah, yeah uh, cook tortoises within their shell, simmering its own translucent green fat. Um, and he said when they were cooked, yielded a white meat that was considered a delic delicacy, quote, for those whose stomachs soar above all prejudices. Mm -hmm. So shocking. they would collect uh, Galapagos tortoises and put them on the ship, right? And right, and put them alive. on their backs, basically, to just like so they don't get running so don't around. Run around. Yeah. But you know they could keep them alive until they were ready to to oh eat my them. God. Um, but um, Darwin's favorite um, mammal uh, was so armadillo. He really liked, right? Um, was a favorite meal. Quote the one Tastes tasting like, like no. Like beef. Oh. Oh, sorry. No, that's ostrich. Tasting like beef. And the other, meaning armadillo, when cooked without their cases, tasting and looking like a duck. Yeah. His favorite, though, was cavi, which we think today is an avagooty, mm -hmm. which was... A gooty, right. It's a yeah. rodent. Which a is big rodent. Exactly. So um, I do think, though, that we need to share, probably to me, the best story of Darwin eating something 
on this trip. And I think, Josh, you need to the chapter five quote. I think okay. you need to do that one for us. When at Port Desire in Patagonia, Mr. Barton shot an ostrich, and I looked at it, forgetting at the moment, in the most unaccountable manner, the whole subject of the pedicis, and thought it was not full grown not a was a not full-grown bird of the common sort. It was cooked and eaten before my memory returned. <laughs> Fortunately, the head, neck, legs, wings, many of the larger feathers, and a large part of the skin had been preserved, and from these a very nearly perfect specimen had been put together. And now exhibited in the Museum of the Zoological Society, Mr. Gould, in describing this new species, has done me the honor of calling it after my name. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the, that's the Darwin's Rhea. Right. So, oh, I doing. almost ate it. Yes. <laughs> Isn't that great that, that uh, he says, well, we didn't eat the feathers and the head, so yeah. uh, there's that. Yeah. And can't you just see him scrambling like they're, everyone's sitting at the table eating, and he's like, oh, shit. Oh, and he's shit. just like <laughs> grabbing bones, stuff off people's <laughs> plates and just like, no, 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 I need this. <laughs> I need this. And you know, the, the other thing is that all the, uh, many of the bones and, and the fossils that he collected were put in the uh, surgeon's museum and during world war ii were destroyed hmm. so there's very few authentic pieces of darwin's uh specimens that hmm. he collected during uh, his expedition because during uh the second world war they got bombed and destroyed yeah so i think you know darwin has inspired many biologists to to sample their study specimen <laughs> And uh, so I'll have to share with you, James, if you want to put it on the blog spot. There was a there was a fun um, article. Uh, it's called uh, an NPR blog called The Salt, which mm-hmm. is kind of their culinary thing that actually talked about science. It, they introed it with Darwin, but then talking about scientists today sampling their own study organisms. So, yeah, I don't know. What do you guys think about eating your study organisms well i would have been eating mayflies and stoneflies <laughs> so it would have i would have needed a lot of them yeah um, <laughs> i would be eating spiders and they're mm-hmm. pretty yeah they're not very yes. tasty and you'd be eating winter creeper right yeah lately winter <laughs> creeper which you know they make jelly out of kudzu which is another invasive what? vine so maybe i could do that crazy yeah lately i guess i would be eating bats and i don't <laughs> yeah Um, Oh, you know what? Speaking of bats, so one of the things that, so Darwin, when he came back, we talked about his extinct mammals that he uh, listed. There was amazing number, 66 species of mammals he described in South America. And vampire bats. I'm sorry, I got all excited because you said bats. (laughs) Because vampire bat, he uh, described a new species of vampire bat. Turns out it's a subspecies. But it was the first real description of a vampire bat because nobody knew what they were. And he showed, he collected them off his horse and showed that, yeah, it's a real animal that feeds on blood and has no molars and no ability to chew any food, all liquid eater. Just incisors, right? Yep. And so vampire bats are exclusively found in South America? Yeah. And maybe no. up into Central and America? And in Central America. Central, yeah. yeah. They, and they used to be in North America, but for some reason, huh. the only, ex, there's only extant, extinct versions of them found. Hmm. So America. vampire bats land sort of nearby 
their intended victims, mm-hmm. right? Then slowly and creepy. very weirdly, like we need to post yeah. a video of them moving then because creepy. it's very yeah. freaky. Yeah, uh, they 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 use their arms, which are modified now into wings, right? Yeah, but so, they're using them as arms again. So it so looks really weird. unnatural, and they crawl across the the ground over to their intended victim, their target, mm-hmm. what they're what they're going to feed on, and they use those really sharp, pointy incisors to make a wound, and then they lap, lap up the blood. Up. Right. Yeah. So there was a extinct version of a giant vampire bat oh which my. makes sense of the fact that there was giant mammals yeah sure. in that pleistocene time and it, it went extinct and, and they only found uh, bones of it in the which is still like you know i'm thinking about this and okay so yeah i'm a giant sloth but uh, like am i not going to notice this giant vampire b- bat no, like uh what do like, you call that when the army thing like the army crawl, crawl? Like, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's like a mosquito biting you. So the thing that, I know, but the mosquito's like teeny tiny. I think yeah. I'm going to see this big old no, vampire bat. And I think their saliva does have kind of an yeah. anticoagulant yeah. and, and kind yeah, of a, uh, an anesthetic kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they just jab you with those and wait and then start licking up the blood. I wonder how many of those like would just get like stepped on. I wonder. Get off me. That, that was a bat. Excuse me. Vampire bat. Stay on your side. Stay on your side. I think we're done. Are we done? Uh, are we? We were going to close out, I think, with what's the weirdest meat you've ever eaten? Oh. You know what I regret greatly is that I never had cooey, which is guinea pig, when I was in um, Ecuador or mm. Peru. Just because, like, I feel like I should have. What's that supposed to taste like? Chicken, you know? Chicken? Always Probably. Chicken. Always chicken? Never pork? <laughs> So you you said no to guinea pig? No, I just never like I never like I never went to a restaurant and ordered it. Oh, it's not like it was served to me, and I said no. I just I guess I didn't go out of my way to get it, the weirdest, which I could have. The weirdest thing I've eaten is cucumber. I mean, um, sea cucumber, right? Oh, okay. Um, ovaries or eggs, right? You mm-hmm. know, well, that's about it. That's, that's sushi. Weird. That's sushi food. Yeah. Uh, abroad, I guess uh, people would look at squirrel as a weird thing to eat, but I mean that was a pretty standard. <laughs> this <is> Eastern, <laughs> Eastern Kentucky. Yeah. Kentucky so that's Wednesday. I've eaten a lot of squirrel. I was to say I, I have not eaten squirrel. So what does squirrel taste like? Uh, it it is. Squirrel. Is it venisony? No. It kind of it's gamey. Yeah. Uh, in in that in that way, it's uh-huh. not like venison. Yeah. Really, it's stringy. Mm-hmm. Um, especially the legs are, are kind of stringy. Uh, flavor-wise, it has kind of a dull, almost like earthy flavor. Okay. And the best thing I can compare. I mean, it I haven't to even is, had rabbit. I have like really, oh, really? no. I have really uh, yeah. like so, eaten the mainstream my meat gra- products. My <laughs> grandfather was big into hunting and and also trapping. So he trapped yeah. rabbits and and so I've had rabbit, yeah. had squirrel, had rabbit. People, um, I grew up in Nebraska. So I had we rabbit beef, and, and I had squirrel, beef. and I didn't consider that weird. Right, so no. But Darwin with? sort of lists squirrel as a as, weird yeah, thing that he in, ate. That's what they the, eat in the Glutton Club. Yeah. Well, you know why? Because squirrels were introduced to Europe. They yeah. were not a native species. Well, no, there were natives. There were, there were native squirrels, yeah. but not gray squirrels. Oh, okay. right. Yeah. Yeah. And so gray squirrels have displaced, have displaced the native yeah, squirrels exactly. in oh, right. England and, and Scotland. The British Isles, yeah. yeah. All right, we're going to shut down. Sure, sure take us out. Sir. Take a breath. <gasps> And now, now take us out in your James, big, big llama, <laughs> big James radio voice. I have no idea what that is. Yes, you do. Dig, dig deep. Thank you for listening to us on Discovering Darwin. Bye bye. Oh, there she goes. <laughs> See you next time. See you next time. Good night.
do you look for mammary glands in the fossil record, James? Oh, 